What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast, where I'm joined by a very special guest, TXMC, at TXMC Trades on Twitter. If you haven't followed him yet, I definitely recommend it. He's an outstanding follow. He posts great charts and metrics. He pops into a lot of various spaces. And just overall has a great outlook on both the macro and Bitcoin and kind of where that is going. So we go into a good, good conversation all about that, the uncertainty and how it's somewhat correlated in a bunch of other topics. So please, please, please tune in for a jam-packed episode. And as always, ladies and gentlemen, this is not financial advice and should never be taken as financial advice. So please, please, please do your own research and understand that everything said in this podcast should be taken as opinion and only our opinions. Now, let's get into the episode. Oosh. What is up, everybody? I'm back with another edition of the State of Bitcoin podcast. And shout out to everybody listening on those Fountain and Podcasting 2.0 apps and streaming me sats. I really appreciate it. Uh, here's one comment from the last episode. Uh, at Hoddle Hard Money said, great guest, great podcast uh, when I had hashing to heating on. So if you didn't listen to that episode, please go back and give it a listen. And then also, before we get started, another huge shout out to my sponsor, Coddle.co, that's C-O-D-L dot C-O, for, uh, if you use promo code GREENCANDLE at checkout, that's G-R-E-E-N-C-A-N-D-L-E at checkout, you get 10% off your entire order. So even after the new year, you know, if your, your new year's resolutions, get your Bitcoin off exchanges. Do that with, uh, you know, one of the great wallets out there and then store your seed phrase on a punch plate from coddle.co. Get it for yourself and your favorite Bitcoiner out there. But I've got a very special guest, TXMC, host of Alpha Beta Soup. TXMC, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having me on, Brandon. Yeah, so it's great. I mean, I found you on Twitter. You have a great Twitter account with, you know, a lot of various charts. I see you popping into spaces left and right. So, but but for those who don't know you in the audience, why don't you go into a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure. Um, yeah, I'm TXMC, pseudonymously. Um, haven't felt comfortable doxing myself yet because you know how the internet can be. But um, yeah, I, I, I consider myself an analyst and a market participant kind of just broadly. Um, I don't, I am a trader. Uh, and I think that's why people, people know me as a trader, but I, um, I don't have a traditional finance background. In fact, I've never managed money or worked for a financial institution or a bank or anything. So all of my exposure to the markets has been through my own experience and through learning from others and kind of self-teaching. That's the way I prefer to learn. Um, and, uh, I came into Bitcoin, in the 2020 bull market uh, for the last time. <laughs> uh, I bought and sold it a couple of times in the 2018 bear market, um, kind of in a hot hand way without having any idea what I was doing. And it took me a couple of years to really get serious and do some research and start to understand, you know, what makes it appealing, why it's unique. And, uh, and that was really kind of late 2020 for me, uh, which kind of like late in the bull run. Uh, so my my experience with Bitcoin has not been 
uh, a full cycle yet, though we're getting close. And um, it's it's been a really amazing journey the last year and a half or so that I've been on Twitter because uh, I joined Twitter after I uh, kind of started learning about Bitcoin. I wasn't on any social media and I had a friend of mine who encouraged me to start posting some of my thoughts, my analysis, because he knew I was thinking about it and he was already doing those things. Uh, and so uh, I took the leap, you know, made a profile and then it just kind of took off from there. Um, I, I am an analyst also in my profession, my fiat profession, uh, but it isn't anything related to finance. But I do make charts and graphs for people. So that's kind of how, how I learned how to visualize data. And I convey topics about data to people who don't think about data as their job. So those skills have helped me then translate that to creating content about Bitcoin. As I try to learn about it more deeply and try to understand the markets as we're in this kind of fascinating macro environment, uh, whatever I learn, I try to just put out there, A, to share with others, but also as like a sounding board, uh, because I think Twitter in particular is a really powerful tool. I mean, you've got some of the greatest minds in the world on there, and they will give you real-time feedback if you say something wrong or something they don't agree with. So uh, I try to leverage that as much as I can, and it's gotten a decent amount of followers through that process, which is pretty exciting. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. And I mean, your analysis is absolutely great. And I, honestly, I, I thought that you just based on it, that you had like a traditional finance background. So it's pretty interesting that you don't. But, you know, you mentioned that you uh, got started in late in the 2020 bull run uh, here with Bitcoin. So it hasn't been the easiest go for you here no. in this time. So, you know, why don't you talk about that and like kind of your first experience you know, going through these these massive amounts of crashes while you're learning, because, you know, mm -hmm. to be honest, I think a lot of Bitcoiners are kind of in your same position here, too, where maybe, you know, they, they have a lot of net paper losses from the, the that all time high. But, you know, obviously just keep continuing to stack is uh, really encouraging. So why don't you go into, you know, a little bit about yeah, just that experience, how it's been? Yeah. And, you know, this is this is a. Going through a bear market is never easy, and anyone who's been in Bitcoin for more than a cycle can 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 attest to that. But that's that's true even outside of Bitcoin. You know, anyone who goes through any kind of a bear market, it's a it is a true learning experience. And uh, you know, I think that a lot of folks uh, came to Bitcoin around maybe around the time that I did, or maybe a little before or after me, um, uh, and you know, have found now uh, the market rolling over swiftly, and you know, if you just rewind time back uh, like 18 months, there were all kinds of narratives that were circulating in the community about how the market must continue to go higher. Um, but, you know, looking back now, seeing there, there were so many different signals uh, warning to us that, in fact, market strength was not as it appeared. Price had gotten far out ahead of its skis and that the underlying strength of the market was considered was a lot weaker. Um, but you know, the, the kind of fascinating thing about markets generally, and particularly bull markets, is that, you know, infinite narratives can be conjured to justify price action. There is always a new narrative to justify why price did the thing today. And the, the tough thing in a bull market is that some of those narratives can become really seductive and they can start to have really long-term, you know, perspectives. I certainly fell prey to a little bit of that 
at times during the bull market, you know, it's it's hard not to be seduced by some of these ideas that this time is the, the paradigm shift. This is the, the sound money revolution. And of course, none of those things really came to pass in, in the way that many Bitcoiners thought just yet, you know. Um, it's been a learning experience for sure. When I started buying Bitcoin, I didn't know that we were, you know, a couple of months away from the peak of price. I didn't quite know what the markers were to look for to really understand that market specifically. You know, my trading experience never really required me to do that kind of analysis. You know, when I learned how to trade the markets, it was extremely myopic. It was focused on momentum in small caps in like pre-market and shortly after the bell, trading the level two, watching the tape and just really getting in and out quickly, little scalp trades. And you don't have to know very much about macro at all to make that strategy profitable and effective. And so that that was really my entry to the markets. And so when I started learning about Bitcoin, seeing what it was what was happening with the economy, with all the stimulus we were creating in the wake of COVID, all the monetary distortion that it was putting into the economy, uh, it, I, it it really kind of motivated me to start learning more. And I think that it it wasn't really until maybe the end of last year, maybe December and maybe January of this year, that I started to understand that. Um, it, we were not just in a correction. We were probably at the beginning of a more protracted type of bear market, maybe one that Bitcoin had never seen before because through its lifetime thus far, it had existed in primarily a supportive macro regime and that seemed to be shifting. And so like it, it's this year has been an amazing learning experience, a, a kind of a turn of phrase that I use to describe these things. Markets are a savage Darwinian beast, you know, and they teach in the most ruthless way possible. And, and unfortunately, for most participants in the market, you have to learn in the hardest way possible. You can't just have someone tell you, hey, you should do X, Y, Z with your assets. Hey, I think the market's going to do this. You know, in the end of the day, people will make their own decisions most of the time. And, and for a lot of folks, they have to learn by going through these market phases. And so right now, I think everyone myself and any other Bitcoiners um, and it really anyone else in the market, but we're talking about Bitcoin specifically, uh, we're paying our tuition right now. Uh, it is levied upon all applicants without exception. We're all paying it right now. Uh, and we'll all be stronger for it, I believe. Um, th this has been a really uh, kind of interesting year to become macro aware. <laughs> uh, and I think that Bitcoin is going to be at the center, at the nucleus of the story of monetary distortion as we go forward through this decade and the decades beyond, I think Bitcoin will kind of be at the apex of responding to those oscillations in the economy because of the nature of its design and the way that it reacts. Yeah, so I mean, that, that's a really interesting point. And, you know, you're, you're bringing in that traditional finance kind of trading aspect from it. But you know, what you're saying here, or at least what I'm kind of reading into is that, you know, Bitcoin isn't really like any other asset that we've kind of ever seen before, right? Because it's, you know, 24-7 trading or kind of movements, volatility, very violent swings in, in either direction when, when it comes to, you know, very specific macro events and events that, you know, obviously like Bitcoin can't control. And, and obviously there is no CEO or anything like that of Bitcoin, but there are so many outside factors that kind of, you know, bring it in. I mean, I, I watched your latest video on, on the FTX debacle and, and there's some of these other things that, you know, maybe it might not even be completely related to Bitcoin um, at all. I mean, like, right, FTX is a company, 
but that crashing sent Bitcoin price down dramatically. And, you know, uh, all these other exchanges, when they shut off withdrawals and other things like that throughout this year, also set, you know, Bitcoin kind of down, down price action wise. So, you know, as somebody who's kind of just like analyzing the price and kind of analyzing these macro events, how, how do you analyze for that or even like look into to something like that compared to, you know, your background as looking at, you know, traditional companies where, you know, maybe you only had to worry about a, a Tim Cook at Apple or you only had to worry about, you know, something else where, you know, some of these macro factors, like you said, aren't as, uh, you know, I guess, dramatic or as important as maybe they are to Bitcoin. How do we? How do you? How do you factor in like things like the FTX collapse? Yeah, well, I mean, factor in maybe more, maybe not FTX co collapse specifically, but some of these more macro events, right? Because we're we're getting like you know the, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. We're getting a lot of these, like you said, kind of macro events that mm -hmm. you never really had to pay attention to. But it seems like all eyes are on the Fed these days. All eyes are on the monetary policy. Some of these yeah. like outside factors that really, you know, just don't go against the Bitcoin fundamentals. And it's more so, I guess, an entire market move opposed to just, you know, a Bitcoin yeah. move specifically. So, you know, how are you guys I kind of looking at this overall like macro environment, whether it's, you know, companies or the, the Federal Reserve kind of, I guess, almost like pulling these strings, right, where, where we're seeing mm -hmm. these, these kind of violent swings in either direction? Yeah, you know, the we're definitely having... A, people in the Bitcoin space uh, are, are having to pay attention to more elements of the economy and the markets than they had to in the past in, in order to be successful as a Bitcoin investor, right? And, and the thing that I think it's important to point out is that all of these factors that we feel that we now have to care about have always mattered. It's just that they are now conversely against the grain of what people are hoping price action will do. Right. And so the, the, those factors have been broadly supportive and accommodative for 10 to 15 years. Uh, and in many ways, they're now changing. You know, there have been brief periods where uh, the Fed and, and the monetary authority tried to uh, kind of cool the skis a little bit. You know, in 2017-18, they, they ran QT for a little while uh, and then they were swiftly rejected by the market and they had to stop. Uh, and I think that that reaction was has been expected. I mean, you can see that kind of Pavlovian expectation that people think that uh, any amount of pain that the market endures is going to be saved by Papa Fed, and that 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 reaction is specifically what they are trying to break down actively this year. And uh, it's you know when you think about interest rates. Uh, interest rates um, have always played a factor in Bitcoin. Uh, Bitcoin is a highly interest rate sensitive asset class, um, especially to short term rates. And the, it, it always has been. And it, it, but it wasn't until we got, in, got to this year when the authorities started using rates as a tool against the market uh, in an effective way that it started to actually matter. And they started raising rates at, you know, maybe the most aggressive pace in history. That also plays a role. But there, there's other elements of the economy that have been sympathetic to Bitcoin's price action forever that we can look at and, and they can corroborate that what we are seeing in the price action makes perfect sense right now. And, and one of those is credit conditions broadly. So like you can look at, I've posted this chart a few times on Twitter. You can look at 
high yield corporate credit spreads versus Bitcoin bull and bear markets broadly. I don't mean on like a weekly basis or even a monthly basis, but in a macro trend sense, uh, credit spreads widen. They get broader. The yields rise in bear markets for Bitcoin. The, the spreads tighten. Yields, you, you know, the credit yields get, get narrower. The conditions are more supportive. There's more liquidity flowing in bull markets for Bitcoin. You can see those oscillations. And I think that that really shows that it is a liquidity sensitive asset. And it, and it wasn't until the removal of liquidity from the market that it started to behave everything really kind of became correlation one, which is something you were mentioning. Everything's kind of one trade this year and everything has become so liquidity sensitive uh, that the removal of it has now forced everything to move in one direction. And, you know, when you look at, like I said, we look at credit conditions, Bitcoin has always followed those same thing with PMIs, which is not so much of a liquidity function, but more just expectations of business conditions, you know, new orders and employment and things like that. If you look at the PMIs, the oscillations of those from 2010 to now follow the Bitcoin bull and bear markets. It's everything has always been sympathetic to one another. And I think that over the last 10, 15 years, there was so much monetary debasement. Interest rates were kept artificially low for an exorbitant amount of time. And so Bitcoin was allowed to kind of create its own narratives. It experienced some so bull and bear markets. And in those times, stocks also saw some brief bear trends, though it wasn't a full breakdown of the secular bull. And in those brief bear trends, Bitcoin saw steep bear markets, partially because of its inelasticity to demand, right? Because the supply doesn't change. And so that, that sort of liquidity, as I've heard Michael Cow call it, it goes both ways, really. So like when, when we get to demand spikes because of that inelasticity, price can move really dramatically. But at the same time, when that demand goes away, there isn't that kind of converse supply effect. And so price can fall really swiftly. And then so Bitcoin's always been really liquidity sensitive. I think that it it's become more obvious this year. And I think when we start to move forward, this learning experience, I hope, helps to mature the class a little bit. There's going to be investors that don't learn. There's going to be people who get greedy and they ape into things in the next bull run. Those things won't change. But perhaps broadly as a space, we can start to understand that um, Bitcoin is a macro asset. It has always been a macro asset since the beginning of time, largely because what it is priced in, the assets that we acquire Bitcoin with those assets are highly sensitive to market conditions, to liquidity, to interest rates, the things that we are pricing Bitcoin in. So as a natural byproduct, it is affected by those things. And I think that, you know, like we mentioned earlier, when you're in the bull and all of these narratives are conjured to justify price, it's really easy to think that this amazing monetary innovation is somehow capable of doing its own thing, even at this young stage of its life. Uh, but we've learned this year that that isn't true yet. Maybe it will be at some point in the future. Uh, I would argue perhaps not. Um, but it's been more. It's been very, very obvious this year. Yeah, and it, you said you'd argue perhaps not. But let's uh, kind of get into that point because there's always been kind of the narrative around Bitcoin Twitter that Bitcoin will eventually decouple itself from like growth stocks, right? But right now it seems like, like we've kind of said and gone back and forth, is that it's 
pretty correlated, right? I mean, like we've, we've seen the, the growth stocks shoot up. We've seen them come crashing down. And Bitcoin, for the most part, has kind of generally followed that path. But, you know, there is one thing that I think is pretty encouraging right now is that even though I feel like growth stocks are kind of still on the way down, maybe not as dramatic as Bitcoin, We've kind of had this sideways motion here of around maybe 16 to 20K for, for Bitcoin. And, you know, granted, the stock market's kind of stayed around there as well. So, you know, how do you view the, I guess, the decoupling, so to speak, from the stock market? Do you think that that's going to kind of continue to happen as more Bitcoiners come in and, you know, hold their own private keys, take it off exchanges? Is that a trend that you're kind of looking at and analyzing? Uh, I mean, I know that's that's two pretty big questions. So I'll go ahead and go into that right there on, uh, you know, how you view just the decoupling from growth and various, uh, you know, stock market trends or, or whatnot. And, uh, you know, some things that you're looking at Bitcoin related to that. Yeah, you know, the the coupling conversation is pretty funny. Um, it's it's a it's good to talk about it, but it's also it's almost be- it's almost become like a trigger word on Twitter to talk about decoupling. Um, time frame matters, I think, uh, and and a lot of times when you um, see new tweets about decoupling, it's usually on a pretty low time frame. Um, certainly, the correlation to the Nasdaq has been increased in the last couple of years from where it was before, uh, but. As, as I was trying to, trying to articulate a minute ago, the, the, the bull and bear cycles have always kind of followed each other broadly. You know, the stock market goes up when Bitcoin's going up, stock market's going down or sideways when Bitcoin's going down. Uh, those things have always kind of broadly been true. And I think that um, when you have catalysts, ex- exogenous factors affecting the markets, Bitcoin gets a chance to react first a lot of the time. And so that can create this idea that it has decoupled when, in fact, it made its move at an earlier time, you know, because it's 24-7, 365. Markets are 252 days a year for eight hours a day. So you only get a window of time in which the market can the, the traditional market can react to these exogenous factors. And, and it does it in a very systematic way. There's a lot of portfolio balancing. There's a lot of, you know, cross current flows that are affected. So it happens in a, in a kind of systematic way. Whereas Bitcoin, it's a free market. It's a it's its own enterprise. It can react in the moment as much as it feels it needs to to whatever's happening externally. And so I think that that disrupts some of the correlation arguments that we make when you look at it mathematically. When you like run a correlation test over Bitcoin and like the the S and P, I think some of those differences can mess that up. But broadly, we know that they've always kind of followed each other. And I think that when I think about into the future. And I'm 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 open to being wrong about this, and I'm open to hearing how I, I I could be having this, how how I could be mistaken on this. But it seems to me that if if Bitcoin is going to continue to mature as a monetary asset, uh, it would make sense to me that it would become more correlated to the markets, not less. If it's going to become a successful monetary unit, then you would expect some amount of commerce to be priced in Bitcoin at some point. Right, some some aspect of a, of an economy somewhere, people are using Bitcoin to buy other things in some some regard. Whether that's buying back into fiat because they're using it as a hedge, or because it's actually the unit for like an energy market or something. I'm just as throwing out examples. It, you would expect that to happen, and because it is a money, 
right? And someone will start using it as money. There are places in the world that are using it as money now. Uh, if that's going to continue, and I would I would expect its profile as a monetary unit to become more closely related to other markets because it becomes a pricing unit for other things. And as a result, it is sensitive to the conditions of the economy and less sensitive to what Bitcoin itself is, right? Because Bitcoin is relatively unchanging. And so we're just kind of waiting on the maturity factor, and the adoption factors to kind of percolate. And I think that that when I, when I think about that going forward, if Bitcoin is going to be used more and more as a pricing unit, as a denominator where its strengths can be realized, where its protection of buying power can be exercised, it has to have things priced in its own native units. And that, in a sense, will make it very uh, responsive to exchange rates, to interest rates, to monetary policy in various currencies. So I, th I think that the correlation is naturally, should be naturally expected to become more close-knit as Bitcoin matures rather than going the other way. That's a really interesting point and kind of the, the, the first time I've heard that. And, you know, it is, I, I think it is pretty timely right now because we are seeing, you know, a dramatic bear market, not only in Bitcoin, but obviously in the greater markets. And I think the narrative, you know, this year, I, I don't know if I, I hadn't really been on Twitter, Bitcoin Twitter, I guess, for other cycles, but the narrative going around here, I know I saw Dan Held and some of the others was there was going to be this great super cycle. The right? super cycle. Yeah, like it was just going to keep going up and it wasn't going to be as volatile, but it'll keep going up. But now we're in the longest bear market in Bitcoin's history. Yes, right? And it is, a, it is a short history. So, you know, I guess, how do you view, I guess, these four year cycles now? Um, mm -hmm. I know you've kind of talked about how it's somewhat correlated with the overall market. Do you kind of continue to think that uh, Bitcoin is going to go in these four years ish cycles just based on you know the the properties of bitcoin when we have the halvings and other periods like that um or do you think you know it's just going to kind of kind of be i guess a little bit more correlated to some of these market cycles so you know say for example we see a decade of growth we might see you know a decade of growth in bitcoin you know relative to fiat price yeah you know, uh, bubbles will continue to occur, um, mini bubbles, big bubbles. Um, those things have always existed. And I think that the, the, the idea that Bitcoin would stop having cycles, um, uh, I think is a little silly in the sense, in the sense that uh, markets have always been cyclical right? For centuries, for generations. So I, that's not something I, I see changing. Uh, I, I see that pretty simply, but I do think that that super cycle argument is interesting. And that's one of those examples of a narrative that is born out of a bull market that people can magnetize toward that makes them feel warm and fuzzy. But if you start to pick it apart and you really put a critical eye towards it, it's hard to defend it in the real world because there aren't very many examples that you can use, right? And history is a way of rhyming. So we, we, we've seen, unless you're going to make the argument that this specific market, this one time is different and you have evidence for that, it's hard to justify it in my opinion. And so I, I think that it, 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 was a, it was a bull market narrative that uh, we have now found to not be true. As you said, we're now in the 
the technically the longest bear market of Bitcoin's life. If November 21st was the low price, and we consider that the end of a, of a bear market, just kind of technically high to low, uh, then that would have been just a little shorter than the 2013-14 bear market by about four weeks. But if we consider that this bear probably still has further to go, then we are now in the longest bear market in Bitcoin's life. And it's the first one that is experiencing a bear market in traditional markets as well, uh, in the bond markets as well. I mean, everywhere is having a bear, right? And so that that's that kind of cyclicality, I don't think will change. I do think you could see you could see an argument, and I think that maybe I can't speak for Dan Held, I don't know him, but I think that maybe some of that argument that he makes comes from just this kind of long-term debt cycle perspective, the Ray Dalio. Uh, you know, kind of big debt crises, long-term debt cycle perspective, you could say maybe we're kind of near the end of one of those. It certainly appears that we're at the end of a long-term debt cycle. And that as a result of that, maybe these smaller, like the next three, four years, maybe it does look a little different from the prior three, four-year patterns we've seen. Um, but I, I think that as far as Bitcoin goes, I think that its four-year cycles have uh, been a bit serendipitous it's been perfectly aligned with some external events that have made it seem as if bitcoin and the havings were doing their own thing in their own little vacuum of space but i would make the argument that perhaps it was just a kind of a convenient aligning of unrelated events so what do i mean so like if you think about bitcoin's life and you think about the dating of the having events Two of the having events occurred within a couple of months of QE beginning, uh, the 2012 having and the 2020 having. The 2016 having occurred at the end of a kind of bearish correction in equities. It was when Trump got elected, interest rates started rising in early 2017, and the markets started rising in early 2017. And Bitcoin started rising shortly after a halving, and that began the 2017-18 bull run. And when you look at those events on a chart, it looks like the halving is creating bull runs. But when you know, when you consider everything we've been talking about, and I'm not trying to diminish them because I think that they can create a hype factor. There is a narrative there. There is a reflexivity of the halving that creates some amount of demand. So I'm not going to try to diminish that. But what I'm trying to articulate and give people things to think about on are that if you look at Bitcoin's events, if you look at those three halvings, two of them are extremely close to significant exogenous factors, quantitative easing. I think QE2 uh, was in 2012. I, I don't have the timeline in front of me. The Yardeni research guys have a really awesome website that has all the timeline. And you can go look at it on there. I've posted a chart on Twitter uh, a few months ago where I, I lined up the halvings with these QE events and with that 2017 event where interest rates kind of hit a low and then began to rise because interest rates naturally slowly rise in a bull market, right? Over time, right, rates rise until they kind of reach a breaking point and then we have a breakdown in rates. But that that began around the time of the 2016 halving. So we have three halvings lined up with three Unrela unrelated to Bitcoin events that all created bullish price action outside of Bitcoin. But Bitcoiners have blamed all of it on the having, or have credited, I should say, all of it on the havings. And uh, I just think that that's a unfair credit. I think that 
these other factors are significant and they have always been significant. And so when I think about what a having represents, the having represents a cutting of issuance, of daily issuance. Well, we have 90% of Bitcoin supply currently circulating. So we are thinking about on the next halving in 2024, cutting daily issuance from 900 roughly Bitcoins to 450 Bitcoins a day when we still have 92% or something of the supply in circulation. So I think that the effect of the daily issuance uh, that the halving has is pretty much only a hype factor now. Because the, 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 other, the other point I will make, and then I'll come up for air and let you respond, is... The there is a there is a belief that when you cut issuance in half, that that somehow increases the impact of a single dollar of buying power on Bitcoin or that it somehow makes it easier for price to go up. But those things aren't remotely true because issuance is not connected to the price in in a direct way. Right, you could you could say that maybe a miner they just won the latest block, so they sold their you know twelve bitcoin or whatever. Like a, you could you could make that argument six and quarter bitcoin. You could make that argument, but the liquid markets where price is determined on a daily basis are not having their liquidity supplied by the daily issuance of coins to miners. Right, the liquidity in the market exists at all times. It's there now with the 90% of supply that is there and the people willing to transact with it today. That's what's determining the market. So when you have a future issuance rate that is cut in half, that's very interesting. It's a technical marvel. It's a unique event for Bitcoin, but it isn't, it isn't a mechanical driver of price action as much as perhaps an emotional one. And that's just the kind of thought process that I want people to have when they think about it, because I think that the, the, the narratives that have been built around the having and the four-year cycle as a result uh, have some flaws in them. And those are the ones that I see. Yeah. And I mean, I think those are, there's a great point outs and I really appreciate, you know, kind of you going in and, and going on that little rant there, because I mean, I, I, I agree with you there because, you know, when you, when you really take a step back and look at it, like you said, it's only less than 10% of the overall market is affected by mining at this point in time, you know, as majority of the Bitcoin that'll ever be, you know, mind are, are kind of in circulation at this point, whether it's in cold storage, you know, what have you, but there is something interesting that's kind of gone on this bear market that hasn't happened on the other two. And that's the increasing of the, the hash rate for Bitcoin miners. And so, you know, obviously we, we just kind of had a lot of miners shut off in Texas and some other places because of the harsh winter condition conditions to kind of help the grid. But, you know, for the past, I don't know, four or five, six months, the, Hash rate has been kind of steadily increasing. Granted, like I said, it just kind of topped off and maybe around November time uh, and then it's kind of started coming down. But how do you view an event like that where, you know, obviously mining is a huge portion of, you know, Bitcoin, the network and everything like that. But, you know, as we've kind of gone through this past five minutes or so, you know, the, the, the mining and the way that it works right now is that, you know, there's there's only really affecting 10% or so of the market. And so, you know, whether that's 
these miners coming in and, and selling some of their their profit and what have you, some of their mining rewards and whatnot. But, you know, how do you view, I guess, the overall hash rate kind of continually increasing during this bear market, even though the price is kind of, I guess, stagnant for lack mm-hmm. of a better word? Yeah, it, it's um, it's putting a lot of pressure on the miners. You know, they are they are getting it from all sides right now. So they miners are they're screwed right this moment because um, the thing that generates profit for them is at a is 75% down from the all time high. Um, they are short energy costs uh, and hash rate continues to rise. So their share of the market is shrinking. The price of the Bitcoin is shrinking and energy costs are, are, are higher than they were a year ago. So miners are really getting squeezed. Uh, the, the hash rate itself is interesting because you're right, it has been going up, um, but it goes up in every bear market. You know, there's a, there's a, there is a capitulative time at some point in every bear where a bunch of hash goes offline. It's kind of that breaking point for miners that, that you're talking about where we always see a, a, a wave of selling. Some machines get shut off. Some people go out of business and they never come back. But then usually right after that, hash rate starts going back up again. It did that in 2018, almost right at the low of price. And that was around the bottom of the, the pullback in hash. We saw something similar to that this year. Um, I don't have any kind of unique alpha on what I think is going on with the hash rate, but I do think it's pretty clear. Um, there's been, there are some people out there who are either uh, cost insensitive as far as electricity goes, or they are actively trying to squeeze out market participants, miners in, in the market. That I, That seems to somewhat be going on. And, and I, the reason I think that is because you hear about a, lo- a lot of this hardware that's just sitting around right? That a lot of these people have uh, that's been shut off, uh, but yet we still can see hash rate rising. Some of these machines, you know, some of these S19Js and stuff were going for like $15,000 a year ago, and they're now eight, 900 bucks. Like that market has been roasted. Uh, I think we probably still have some more mining pain to go through. I don't know how much more forced selling there is necessarily, but um Hash rate does rise in bears. I think it will continue to rise. I don't think that we're going to see a period where where hash just stops continuing to accumulate over time. Um, that I, I don't. What I don't know though is where this hash is going. Like what kinds of entities are acquiring it? If maybe they already had these machines, or if they're scooping up a lot of these ones that are now on ninety percent discounts. I don't really know. Um, people have rumors that some of this hash rate is in Russia, that it's in all these different places. I don't know how easy it is to verify those things. Um, but I, I do think it's pretty interesting that we continue to see it going up and it, you know, some of these public miners, uh, had really weak business models. You know, I think it's no surprise that core scientific filed bankruptcy. When I was looking at their debt to equity ratios about a month ago, they had a debt to equity ratio of 18 and the next worst miner public miner was a three. So like the, it just was, the writing was on the wall. They took out far too much debt. Uh, and the, you know, the, the markdown of their assets is nowhere near what they owe. So, uh, I, I don't know if I have much more to add on it than that, but, um, yeah, I think that this has been a really rough market for those public miners. I don't know how many of them will survive. Uh, but, uh, hash itself is, a, is still a commodity that is in high demand as we can see. 
Yeah, for sure. And I, and I think you're, you're nailing it on the head there. And I think, you know, the point about the business models is just, yeah, absolutely correct too. I think a lot of these miners, you know, it's interesting because you see that a lot of these miners want to hold on to their Bitcoin, hodl their Bitcoin. right? Right. And I just think from any other kind of industry, whether it's oil mining or gold mining or, you know, something along those lines, those companies try to distance themselves as much as possible from that asset. Whereas in Bitcoin, it's kind of celebrated for some of these miners to hold on to their Bitcoin and they kind of, you know, have to ride with the tide. And, you know, whether it's everybody's kind of jumping in, jumping up and down when this bull market's going up and a lot of these companies are kind of either FOMOing in, buying Bitcoin, holding on to it, saying Bitcoin's going to the moon, what have you. And then they didn't really didn't prepare for this this prolonged bear market, unfortunately. Yeah. So it seems like a lot of them are going to kind of go under as well. So, I mean, granted, some of them already have. And, and I think that trend is going to kind of continue. But there's a lot of, uh, you know, we've, we've kind of alluded to it throughout this conversation, a lot of like interesting macro events. Right. So, you know, we're all kind of self-taught here in the, in the Bitcoin land when it comes to the macro events. So, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, I, I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot here as to how do you think the Fed's going to react in, in 2023? You know, I, I there's a lot of narrative around there about the, the Fed pivot. And we'll get get into, I guess, my viewpoint on that maybe a little bit later after yours. But I, I obviously we've seen the Fed right raise interest rates at you know like you said a, a historic pace at this point, and Bitcoin and other assets have kind of reacted to that, and they're kind of trying to pull these strings, you know, pretty violently to try to combat inflation. Although it's already you know kind of been here, we've seen the CPI prints at obviously all, pretty close to all time highs for for such a long time. And I think the latest one was around seven one, if I'm not mistaken. So you know, how do you think, uh, you know, what's your overall outlook of 2023 as far as it comes like, you know, the, the federal reserve and, and how some of these policies they're going to, I guess, pull and and maybe your view on the, the narrative of the pivot. Yeah. Uh, that's been, I, I feel like um, if there was a word, to describe FinTwit in 2022, it was pivot. That was the thing that I saw people talk about the most and had the most various takes on. Uh, I won't try to pretend like I've got it all figured out, right? I, I certainly don't know. This is the most complicated macro setup that anyone alive has ever tried to analyze or evaluate. Plain and simple. It is It is the most most complex, you know, to most uh, inter, inter, or sorry, what am I trying to say? It has the most moving parts. So the, as far as the Fed pivot goes, you know, like that, there's a lot of conversation about um, what is their real agenda? You know, are they actually trying to destroy the markets? You know, like I, I want to put some of those aside because those are kind of hard to quantify, you know, the actual like human intent behind it. All we can really go on are the measurements of the economy, what they say they're doing, and what we see them doing historically, right? Those are the things we can actually sink our teeth into and use. So let's talk about those things. So the Fed's trying to fight inflation, uh, a supply-driven inflation problem for which they have no material solutions, right? And I think that they, they've they kind of admitted that. They've admitted that throughout this year. When I say they, it's mostly Jerome Powell, 
Uh, he said it numerous times. There's very little they can do about inflation. All they can really try to do is beat on the economy and make it slow down enough that then as a byproduct, inflation cools off. But what they're really what they're really focused on more than inflation itself is the expectation of future inflation, right? Because that's what affects people's behaviors. That's what affects wages. That's what affects people's investing and spending and saving behavior. So like that, that's really what they're trying to manage. And so whether they're super effective in their interest rate policy or in their QT at actually solving inflation quickly, I think matters less than the appearance that they are taking it seriously and willing to take extreme measures to do something about it, right? They want to appear as if they are willing to go the hard route because they don't want people to just assume that inflation is here to stay because that is actually a death knell for a central bank. They don't want that. So they're going out of their way to try to avoid that. And I think when you create 40% of all the money in existence in an 18-month window, it's reasonable to then get really scared that you might create an a catastrophic inflation problem. Uh, and it, they reacted far too late to it as well, right? They were still talking transitory at Christmas last year uh, when inflation was, you know, six and a half or something like that. So the, the, they definitely got it wrong. And, and I think that there's an aspect of, of face saving going on here as well, right? They, they have to maintain their own credibility in order for the market to even care at all what it is that they have to say. And when you look back at what Paul Volcker dealt with in the late 70s, you know, they were using um, 10 year rates as a proxy for inflation expectations because they didn't have a tips market back then. And even though they were raising the Fed funds rate, uh, 10 year yields just kept rising and rising and rising and rising into like 1981 before they finally turned over. And it was showing the Fed at the time. And remember that Powell is a huge Volcker fan. He's read his book. He used to carry his book around at the Eccles building and hand out copies of it to people. He thinks that he is a young Volcker. He was friends with Paul Volcker. It was his mentor. And Paul Volcker, Volcker saw a market that did not believe in the credibility of the Fed. It believed in long-term inflation. Rates continued to rise. Long-term rates continued to rise even as the Fed was trying to combat inflation on the short end. And Powell is trying to avoid that. And so that's what we've been dealing with all this year. you know. And I think that there's a lot of expectation that they would be forced to pivot, that something was going to just imminently collapse and that they would be forced to come back to the market with their tail between their legs, provide the liquidity that everyone thinks that we must have in order to move forward, uh, and that it would just be another charade like the Powell pivot in 2019. Um, but we haven't gotten that, and I don't think we're going to get it that way. Um, part of the, the trouble, Brandon, is that like the monetary distortion is at max intensity right now. You know, the Fed thought that when they raised rates from essentially zero to 4% in nine months, that that would create some jobless claims. But if you look at the four-week average of initial jobless claims, it's basically where it was in December of last year. It's basically flat for an entire calendar year. And we've been seeing jobs, get, we've, seen, we've been seeing tech layoffs, particularly a lot of layoffs in the tech sector. Uh, but we also have a lot of job creation. We still have wages rising. And so that there's there's still a lot of strength left in the economy, 
an economy that is still expanding, even as we have recession signals flashing everywhere. We have an inverted yield curve, uh, very inverted yield curve. Uh, there's a lot of other signals, the turning over of housing, the contraction of PMIs. There's new orders contracting. There's a lot of things that say, hey, we're in the middle of a long bear market. We're going into a recession. These things happen in a certain order, and the first series of things have started to happen. But because of all the money they created, because we have generational changes to the labor force where there's just simply not a lot of willing supply, all those factors are warping the Fed's own desire to soften the economy. And that is pushing out the timeline of a pivot longer and longer. You know, people thought it was going to be in September. I remember the Luke Gromans of the world, who I respect. I, I We follow each other. I talked to Luke, great analyst, but he was dead fucking wrong in Q3, excuse my language, uh, when he was telling everyone the Fed was going to have to pivot because the treasury market was going to go illiquid. You know, you saw the move index and it was basically at 2020 highs, but not, that never happened, didn't materialize. What happened in the gilt market in the UK never quite came over to our shores. And so those things haven't materialized. And I know I'm going on and on here, but I think that it's a big picture to try to paint. And it's it's made it very difficult for folks who are trying to call these things in a timely way to try to say, this thing's about to happen. The Fed's going to have to turn here. They're going to have to do this. Oh, interest expense is getting too high. Oh, they're in a debt spiral. They have a bunch of ways that they can continue kicking this can further than anyone thinks it's possible. And even though we're looking around and it looks like we're at the end of a long-term debt cycle. It looks like the dollar is about to destroy all other currencies. You know, it feels like the economy is is you know in a blow-off top in a way. We're still moving. We're still expanding. People still have jobs. Everyone who wants a job has a job, and there's a lot of people who just don't feel the need to work at this time for whatever reason. Right. We see that in labor participation. We see that in early retirees who have not come back to the labor force the same way that older workers stuck around after the great financial crisis. We haven't had that same effect. Those workers are now 15 years older. They don't feel like sticking around, you know. Uh, so if there's there's just a, there's a lot of generational changes labor wise that were already going to happen. And then when when all of the monetary distortion happened as a result of the pandemic, uh, they really kind of melded with what was going on with labor. And they've made it so that now the signals the Fed is using to determine when to turn the liquidity spigot back on, all of those are very distorted and they're taking much longer to play out. And now, you know, the last thing I'll add, just to show how messed up the sequence is on this bear market, you know, we have housing rolling over, which is usually one of the first things. Uh, we had PMI new orders go contractionary. That's usually what, like the second or third thing. And then after that, usually we have earnings rolling over. We haven't seen that at all. And in every bear market going back a century, the Fed was done tightening before the top of the market. But this time they started tightening after the top of the market. The top was in January and they started hiking in March. So this sequence is heavily distorted. I don't think a pivot is anywhere close. I think it could be deep into next year. Uh, it really depends on if we have a credit event of some kind. That's impossible to predict. Um, but outside of a catastrophic credit event, it seems that this economy has many more months of resiliency left in it before it starts to look bad enough that the central bank 
by its historical standards would feel the need to step back in. And that's that would require much higher unemployment, first of all. It's not there. Yeah, no, I mean, and I agree with you, too, because I think, you know, I'm, I'm kind of glad you went through that whole spiel, too, because I, I, I think that a lot of people think that the just because based on the stock market that the that the economy isn't doing, you know, what it, I guess what right. it should based on the people pulling the strings. And, you know, you know I think that FinTwit maybe is this bubble and maybe I'm just ignorant because I, I spend a lot of time in the FinTwit, Bitcoin Twitter era, area of Twitter and that all these people are kind of screaming for it. But, you know, I think in the real world, there's still, you know, some more pain to be had, unfortunately. And Powell just keeps kind of doubling down on it. Every time he kind of goes in front of the, the masses and speaks about it, he, he always mentions, you know, there's going to be more pain. There's maybe there's going to be a slowdown, but I think that there's still going to be, you know, increasing rates. And, you know, people think, I, I, I think that the market might react, you know, pretty crazily once he, pulls it back and maybe you know raises by 50 basis points or 25 opposed to the 75 that he's been doing but mm -hmm. you know in reality that's still a pretty extremely high a pretty extreme hike you know based on historical yeah. data so you know i i still think like you said it's still a long ways to go and i don't think that we're going to have a pivot anytime you know maybe in 2023 or anytime you know soon it's maybe possible yeah, I mean, I, I think that if anything, we're, we're just maybe going to have a slowdown and, and that's that's really it. And so, you know, for all those people screaming pivot, I, I don't want to sound, you know, I guess super bearish and negative. But I think at the end of the day, like the the Fed doesn't care about the stock market or, or Bitcoin or anything like that. They, they're they just caring about, you know, the overall health of the economy, which, you know, it all doesn't necessarily revolve around that, unfortunately. Yeah. And, you know, like there's there are arguments to be made that they can't do this forever, you know, and, and one of those is the kind of the, the debt trap, so to speak, uh, that there is a point when they must they probably have to monetize deficits that are essentially required to continue expanding because of entitlements and things like that. And so that there is a future path where they're all their tough talk will run into the cold reality of math. Uh, but I think that 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 finish line is is further out than anyone really thought it possible. And you know, you said something a minute ago, Brandon, that tickled something in my brain. You know, like the the stock market and the economy are related to each other. I mean, particularly in an economy so financialized that has so much consumption driving GDP. However, uh, they don't have to go the same direction all the time. And in fact, there was there was a bear market, a recession, I should say. Uh, because it wasn't a stock market bear market. We had a recession in 1945 uh, where the stock market went up the entire time and unemployment stayed low the entire time, but it was an economic recession. And it was partially because of some of the lifting of price controls and people returning home from the war. And there, there was just, there was, you know, it was kind of a lot of economic turbulence there as we settled back in after war. Uh, but we had a, a, a very weird recession where unemployment didn't really go up very much. The market kept climbing the whole time, but the economy saw a drawdown. So those things can go in different ways. Just like this year, the economy has continued to expand while the markets have been going down. You know, it's kind of the opposite effect. 
Yeah, for sure. And and I agree with you 100% too. So, but you've been very generous with your time and I really appreciate you coming on. I think the audience is going to love this as we've kind of break broke down Bitcoin and the overall macro uh, talk. And I feel like you could talk about this stuff for hours. So I really appreciate yeah. it. Um, but TXMC, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you and what you got going on? Sure. Uh, really appreciate the conversation. I love talking about these things. I could probably keep going for hours. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at TXMC Trades. Uh, and I am also on YouTube. My channel name is Alpha Beta Soup. You can find the link in my bio on Twitter if you don't want to go to YouTube. Uh, I post a lot of my analysis on YouTube, uh, but I also tweet a lot of charts and things. So really both places are good areas to find me. Uh, yeah, that's about it. Happy to come back any other time. Yeah, we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point in time. And I'll link both of those in the show notes, the Twitter account and his show, Alpha Beta Soup. You should definitely check it out. So I uh, I give it the uh, the green candle stamp of approval. So TXMC, yes. thanks so much, man. I uh, appreciate it. And yeah, we're going to have you back on at some point in time. So you've been awesome. Thanks, brother.